You know, one of the things I learned really early on from my father, when I was young, he actually put a hard hat on me, put on one of those green vest things, and he took me out in the steel mill. And I saw the like liquid iron being poured out into these molds and then they, they inject like an oxygen lance in there and turn it into steel somehow. But what that taught me was, you really have to get close enough to the people that you serve to understand their context. That your work as an IT leader, thinker, doer is not detached, shouldn't be detached from the problems of the people that you're trying to serve. Welcome to Impact Audio. I'm Rachel Mindell. Today's episode features a conversation between Sam Kaplan, Submittable's VP of Social Impact, and Chantal Forrester. Chantal E. Forrester is the Executive Director of the Technology Association of Grantmakers, TAG. For over 20 years, Chantal has worked at the nexus of people, data, and technology, leading organizations toward greater collaboration, innovation, and impact. Her career spans the private, public, and social sectors, where Chantal has developed a unique ability to build cross-sector technology initiatives that serve the common good. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and join us in celebrating outstanding technologists in the field of social impact. Chantal Forster, welcome to Impact Audio. And I have to I have to start by asking, like, do you feel like you have finally arrived being a guest star on Impact Audio with me? Sam, it's like a celebrity moment for me. I'm on the Sam Kaplan Social Impact Podcast. It's great to be here. <laughs> well, this is this is uh, amazing for me. So um I would love to just start by like hearing a little bit more about you working in the philanthropic sector. Mm, well, Sam, you know, you and I share this part of our background. We're what you might call accidental techies, right? We're, we're accidental tech leaders. My undergrad is in English literature and, and French and psychology from Purdue University, right? And, and yet my whole career has been in tech from day one, first as a tech recruiter, then as a tech writer, senior tech writer for a predictive analytics firm, SPSS, now IBM, working on actually one of the first data mining uh, software applications based out of London. And then from there, went into public sector tech um, and then became an advisor for the Kellogg Foundation in New Mexico and then stayed in, you know, the social sector side of things really is a, what I hope is a, a catalytic force for good, a bridge builder amongst the sectors, amongst, amongst the techies and the non-techies, right, to, to really realize the change we seek in the world. So that's the, uh, the career story and what I do, 1.5 minutes. <laughs> That's great. And, you know, another thing that we have in common, so I know you learned how to program way back when on a Tandy TRS-80, right? And I totally remember that uh, that little computer, and I had an Atari 400, and I remember um, getting that, and I had subscribed to a magazine specific to, like, Atari computers, and every month there would be a section where it would give you, like, line by line of basic code, and you could, you could enter every line, and at the end it would, like, compile, and you could run this little program, and so I taught myself how to program in basic many years back. Sam, did you really? I didn't know that. How yeah. fun. That was pretty it, much the extent of my own like uh, software development career, by the way. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, I had my own personal tutor. tutor. I didn't uh, subscribe to the magazine, but my father is a computer scientist. He's one of the really early computer scientists. And so he worked at, I grew up on the South side of Chicago 
And he worked at the steel mills down on the southern end of the Great Lakes. And um, that was the 80s and steel mills were closing left and right. So my story was um, dad getting working at steel mills, steel mills sh- shutting down, dad getting laid off, moving to the next steel mill. But his work in those steel mills as an industrial engineer, early computer scientist was to build software systems to streamline steel making, um, to automate in some cases steel making. Um, I remember him doing like 80s-tastic, early 90s versions of uh, artificial intelligence for these like automated guided vehicles, AGVs, that were moving around the steel mills, collecting, you know, materials and whatnot, and building in some some human-level intelligence into those systems. Um, So it was my dad who taught me how to program when I was eight years old. I was probably wearing something neon. I don't know what you were wearing when you were programming. It was like bright neon pink or something 80s, <laughs> 80s riffic. Uh, an eight-year-old girl, my dad was teaching me how to program. But I mean, this is the STEM story for many women in tech. I was really fortunate to have a dad, um, a grandfather who ran a research institute at Purdue University, an uncle who's a nuclear physicist, and they all made it made me feel completely normal having conversations about their work. They talked to me as though I was an equal. Yeah, that's that's an amazing experience. And I'm so happy that you had those very positive influences in your life at that point in time. A moment of celebration for, for the, the female leaders in tech right now. Um, the, our stories are all different. And I, so I do know many women in tech now who had mentors, female mentors, early front runners. And I think that um, the takeaway for me is whatever we can do to open doors for each other, to lift each other up is our responsibility. There's an Eric Liu quote, Eric Liu from the Aspen Institute, and I'll never forget it. I saw him speak in Chicago once and he said, we all have some small amount of privilege, whether it's a lot of privilege or a little bit of privilege, but we all have some amount of privilege. And there's a question for us with that privilege. Are we going to hoard it or are we going to share it? Whatever small amount that is, are we going to hoard it or are we going to use it to benefit those around us? I love that. And um, you know, certainly TAG is doing so much amazing work these days in terms of equity in the in the sector, particularly around uh, technology and technologists. This is one of the defining questions right now for for our society, for philanthropy, for the role of tech. You know, I'd like to quote uh, Michael Stratmanis, an executive vice president at the Obama Foundation. Diversity of perspective is what makes us more innovative. So if I think about the challenges that philanthropy is faced with right now, right, the dollars will only go so far. And so how can we be more innovative, um, more responsive? I, I truly believe that's by improving, increasing the diversity of perspective on our, on our teams. And sometimes that's diversity of background and, and demography. And sometimes it is literally perspective. Yes, absolutely agree. So I'm going to hit rewind just a little bit here. Um, I suspect that we have many people in our audience who are not familiar with TAG. So why don't we start at the beginning? Tell us what TAG is and specifically uh, about your role as TAG's executive director. Oh, I love it. Let's talk about TAG. So TAG is the Technology Association of Grantmakers. Our, our, formerly, when we started, gosh, 12, 14 years ago, um, we were almost like a small club for IT leaders and practitioners and philanthropy, a safe space for IT staff or technology staff to talk shop, to build their networks, to 
fundamentally become more effective at serving their organizations. Fast forward 12, 14 years, and the role of tech in society has changed and also in philanthropy. And so now tag, it, TAG's mission has expanded. So we're no longer just about equipping laptops or networks or cybersecurity. We still do all that. We still provide that knowledge for our members. But you know, our mission now is, is fundamentally about the strategic advancing and enabling the strategic and equitable and innovative use of technology in philanthropy and not tech for tech's sake. I mean, why are we doing all this? To advance the mission of philanthropy. So TAG now is in a place where we are attempting to be very thoughtful about the responsible use of technology to further the missions of all of our foundations and ultimately of the change that we seek in the world. Yeah, I absolutely love that that vision and how the organization has evolved. I would love to hear your perspective. Do you feel that philanthropy and large grant makers in general are ready for a different role for technology at their organizations, one in which technology has the ability to actually influence the mission and, and help the organization achieve its overarching goals versus being viewed as this sort of more traditional, um, you know, back office component of, uh, of an organization? That's a tough question. I'm gonna I'm gonna give a straight answer to that one, Sam. Yes and no. So um, some foundations. I know of a foundation in the past couple of years that was interviewing candidates for an IT leader position, and they had a really great cadre of people who were very strategic minded, mission minded, and ultimately they pulled back and said, you know what? We don't want a strategy leader. We want somebody who can stay in their swim lane. We want an IT leader that can handle the nuts and bolts. What a missed opportunity. It's 2021. <laughs> you know, technology is a scaling agent. It's an accelerant. It helps you deliver your mission in the context of the modern world. And so to pull back and want an IT leader who could just handle the nuts and bolts, I think is short-sighted. So now that's just one example. I know that that's the tension that we're seeing. Some organizations want to, want to stay there. Others, on the other hand, are realizing um, the, the real opportunity we have. Chicago Community Trust recently hired a, a VP of IT and innovation, and they very specifically were looking for someone who could think strategically about how the trust could advance its work in Chicago. Um, complicated ideas about building data collaboratives, right? Integrated systems, cross-funder data sharing and system sharing, systems integration. So that IT leader, Lisa Jericho, was intentionally brought in because of her strategic background. Yeah, that's great to hear. There was a really great article posted recently about moving from an, the ego system, ego system to an ecosystem in philanthropy. And uh, one of the trends I see in moving to this more ecosystem approach is that internally foundations are building interdisciplinary teams, cross-functional teams, multidisciplinary experts who can serve multiple roles, roles and be a bridging function in their organizations. Ultimately, it creates more adaptive and resilient teams. Um, that's just the internal functioning of a foundation. Do you have anything uh, that you would advise technologists in our uh, sector uh, on to be able to uh, participate in the, the future of philanthropy? 
Well, Sam, it's like our, it's like tags, tag has an emerging leaders initiative. And so I'll get the, give the 22nd nutshell version of tags emerging leaders initiative, which aims to build, you know, support and build the next generation of leaders in philanthropy at the same time as we, we help shape and change philanthropy to be ready for the next generation of leaders, right? It's a both and kind of endeavor. I would say that I'm thinking about the Leon Wilsons of the world. Leon is the Chief Information Innovation Officer at um, the Cleveland Foundation. Leon, like I would love to be reincarnated as Leon, right? He is <laughs> such an extra, he's blushing right now. He's such an extraordinary human in that he is a brilliant uh, technologist. He's worked in the private sector, also deeply immersed in the business of philanthropy. Like he understands the business challenges and questions of philanthropy. At the same time, as he also has a grant-making portfolio of technology grants in his community there in Cleveland. And I think that what Leon brings to the table is this extraordinary passion, not just for emerging tech, uh, operational efficiency, but also for how philanthropy itself can better deliver on the mission and what the business challenges are. But then at the same time, he cares deeply about his community and he's in, he's in the community, uh, recognizing the need for investment, recognizing the tech challenges, and then delivering the support that the nonprofits in his region need. Yeah. And I think uh, one of my favorite anecdotes about Leon is that in, in his current role, he actually took classes uh, in finance and accounting so that he could learn the real business of of what the finance team at the Cleveland Foundation does so that he would be in a better position to help them when it comes to technology and data. And that has really stuck with me now for a couple of years. We talked a few minutes ago about my father's influence on my career. And, you know, there's something you're, you're sparking a memory for me. You know, Leon is walking a mile in the shoes, right, of some of his people that he serves, his finance team. You know, one of the things I learned really early on from my father, when I was young, he actually put a hard hat on me, put on one of those green vest things that you wear out in the mill. And he took me out in the steel mill. It was a uh, BO, it's called a BOF. I think it's called a blast oxygen furnace. And he took me in there and I saw the like liquid iron being poured out into these molds. And then they, they inject like an oxygen lance in there and turn it into steel somehow. But what that taught me was you really have to get close enough to the people that you serve to understand their context, that your work as an IT leader, thinker, doer is not detached, shouldn't be detached from the problems of the people that you're trying to serve. The story about your dad, it, it reminds me of this idea that you had a couple of years ago that has really stuck with me and I've been super intrigued by. And that was, you had stated that foundations should have a chief experience officer. Tell us what, what is your vision of a chief experience officer? So, you know, we, we can ask ourselves some tough questions. I'd like to ask some tough questions of, of philanthropy. Like, do, do you know how long it takes a nonprofit to complete your grant form? Do you know how much it costs them? Do you know how many times they tried before they were successful? Do we know how they got to you? What was their journey? from nonprofit to applicant to successful grantee, how long did that journey take? Who did they cultivate in your organization? How many contacts did they try, right? 
Do we know, do you know, as a grant maker, what is the most like time consuming or painful part of a nonprofit's relationship with you? Do you know, like alternately, what's the brightest, most inspiring, like authentically, deeply inspiring touch points they have with your organization? Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, And it's really interesting that we are beginning to see like, sort of from a grassroots perspective, like, you know, people and organizations start to emerge that are asking those questions in light of many organizations not having a chief experience officer. And so I think a lot about like uh, Kari Anastat and the Fix the Form uh, movement, right, which TAG had an opportunity to play a really significant role in with the 100 forms in 100 days uh, initiative. Uh, what what discoveries were made um, as you uh, as you gathered those uh, those forms? The 100 Forms effort was part of that awareness deepening, right? So we gathered a tag together with Grant Advisor, sought together 100 forms, grant application forms from grant makers throughout the world in 100 days. And that was designed to do a couple things. So number one, we were building awareness of the current pain and suffering of nonprofits in the grant application process. Uh, by encouraging funders to make the full form visible or downloadable during the application process. TAG is a nonprofit. Here's the first thing I do when I'm invited to to apply for a grant. I download the form so I can work on it offline, maybe send a couple of questions to a team member who can answer them, coalesce the whole thing, and then piecemeal copy and paste into the online form. Well, until you walk a mile in your nonprofit shoes, you don't know that that's what they do. And this is the number one pain point for them in the process, according to Grant Advisor. So we partnered with Grant Advisor to gather these 100 forms. We ended up gathering 130 forms. This raised awareness with many funders to enable the form download. So success number one, we're really proud that that many foundations were able to do it. Number two, as part of this campaign, we spoke with five different um, GMS providers, grants management system providers, to say, hey, can you enable the ability to download a form? for your your grant makers, because currently they can't. And if it's a dynamic form, how do they download it and make it available for nonprofits to download? And then lastly, the other thing we did with the 130 forms, TAG hired a data scientist to conduct a pretty complicated um, data analysis, similarity analysis between the forms to understand how similar are our grant applications Yeah. Well, uh, don't hold back. Tell us what the data scientists (laughs) discovered. So ultimately what he uncovered is that the grant form submitted, this is Kwame Porter Robinson, uh, data scientist and PhD student at University of New Mexico, uh, University of Michigan, pardon me. And what he discovered was 39% similarity between the forms shared with us. This is global, globally, uh, mainly North America, several funders from the UK and the EU. 39% similarity between the questions asked on these grant forms, which is to say we're wasting 39% of nonprofits' responses, right? 39% of the questions they answer, we could feed in from a common app or a common data repository of some sort. That is the question that now lingers as a result of the 100 Forms in 100 Days campaign. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought it up. Um, I think that there is a real onus on on all of us who uh, are technology vendors in this space to begin to to work with with funders and nonprofits and really start to think through innovative ways that we can 
help to reduce that administrative burden of that 39%. And to me, for a nonprofit to have to continually enter that data, the same data over and over again for every grant that they apply for um, is is just not, you know, it's not, it, it's untenable. It is untenable. And I have to ask a tough question. Is that ethical to know that we're wasting 39% of the questions asked of nonprofits? Right. I think that there is an ethics question related to all of this. I, I would also say that technology vendors, grant makers, we're beginning to, to learn as we go through this process. And organizations like Fix the Form and movements like Trust-Based Philanthropy are doing a fantastic job of bringing to light many of these challenges. Um, and as, as we begin to learn what those challenges are, I do feel like we have an ethical responsibility um, back to the sector to help find ways to overcome those challenges. So Chantal, tell us a little more about the various trends that you are seeing as you communicate with these hundreds of uh, grant makers that are members of the TAG organization. Mm, Sam, I, I love this. Many of our members right now, they're thinking about their budgets for next year. They're thinking about their five-year strategy. We'd love to say we're in a post-COVID world. We're getting there. Uh, but it is a time when uh, most foundations and certainly their IT leaders are thinking about what the horizon looks like. There are a lot of questions right now about moving uh, from discussions around values into action. So I'm hearing many of our TAG members talk about, okay, trust-based philanthropy is a noble goal. Now, how do we, how do we rectify the desire for impact measurement from our board of directors with the desire to become more trust-based with our nonprofit partners? And the same thing around equity. Many of our members have expressed that they'd like to start, they appreciate the reflection, the awareness building um, on diversity, equity, and inclusion in their organizations. And they'd like to start making progress in their organizations. Yeah, They'd like to see the, the needle move there, right, from into some form of accountability. So this is something I've been thinking about a lot as well. And my colleagues at, at Submittable is like, how do you really begin to operationalize the learnings that we are seeing from what I refer to as philanthropy 2.0? So all of, all of the movements, um, all of the discoveries, all of the changes that occurred over the course of, uh, of the terrible year that was 2020, you know, how do we begin to, to, to take those uh, learnings and actually put them into practice? That's a separate podcast, right? When we spoke earlier about the chief experience officer role, this is one way of changing the way that philanthropy works so that it can become a system that can respond and has a framework within which to respond to several of these movements like trust-based philanthropy, like living equity in action. Um, Sam, we, we, I think you and I have spoken before about the fact that I'm a beekeeper. And one of the things that I learned being a beekeeper is that bees have like a built-in, they're already moving from an ecosystem to an ecosystem. They already have a model for participatory, you know, uh, design, right? They already are a collaborative system. They are an ecosystem that already has listening and adaptation built into the way they work as a society. We don't, we as humans don't quite have that. Uh, and so I think philanthropy is in a place where they almost need like an air traffic control, like a CX, a chief experience officer to serve as this integrating function within the organization. and 
invert everything philanthropy does to serve the needs of their client, their customer, their grantee, their nonprofit, right? To think about centering everything philanthropy does on the client experience, which is the nonprofit experience, right? If that's the outcome we seek, our client, our customer is the nonprofit doing the outcomes. Um, So that role could get us there. Right. Well, I was just going to add that a uh, chief experience officer um, could also go a long way towards shifting the power imbalance that has existed forever between uh, grant makers and their nonprofit partners. So a chief experience officer could begin to help foundations uh, think through um, how they can change their processes to really be more fair, more equitable, right, and meet the needs of their uh, uh, the nonprofits that they work with. And I would say even transform um the relationship from being one of a doer to one of a strategic partner. I mean, healthcare's done it, education's done it, finance has done it, right? They've all inverted their operational models to serve their customers or their students or their patients. Um, there's no reason why philanthropy couldn't do this as well. Uh, there's another aside, there's another beekeeping analogy. I don't know if you know, the queen is not in charge of the hive. Did you know that? I had I had no idea. No. Not in charge of the hive whatsoever. The the team, the workers are actually, and they monitor her capability to produce new workers. And if she's not up to the snuff, they they fire her and they raise a new queen, new queen secretly. Um, and they usurp the queen. So <laughs> there's a lesson though about power here. And there's a lesson around what does it, what does a sustainable participatory ecosystem look like? And I would argue that it it means developing a framework for listening and adapting and inviting multiple perspectives to the problem solving that we we seek in the world. Uh, and I think philanthropy is ready for this moment. I think philanthropy is, and I I don't want to go without without giving you the opportunity to uh, uh, to leave us with some parting wisdom. So, um, what what would you like to close with? What have we not talked about yet? Sam, we've spoken many times about the changing role of the IT leader in philanthropy, right? And what will it take for philanthropy to realize or recognize and elevate their IT thinkers? And I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a two-part problem, but there's this, there's a two-part answer. Um, you know, I think that the influence of any function in an organization is very strongly correlated with the perception of that function. Right? Is is that function as an IT leader? Is that part of the profit center or the cost center? If you're in business, right? Is it a strategic lever in our change? If so, then you're very influential. If we don't perceive that, then you're kind of back of house. And I think that IT currently is perceived as back of house, whereas in other sectors, it's perceived as having strategic value. So I think that there is change on the horizon as funders. We saw in TAG State of Philanthropy Tech Survey last year, um, about 22% of funders started providing tech and tools to their nonprofits as a result of the pandemic. I think about 28% provided um, uh, technology training, uh, tech assistance training to their nonprofits. So there is a recognition that tech is becoming increasingly important to actually realizing, um, realizing the change that funders seek. And so as that change uh, increases, we will see the role of the IT leader also growing in influence. But there's something I think that is also um, an important change. We have to believe that change making itself is the 
purview of the full team in philanthropy, not just the program staff with, you know, advanced degrees in, in public policy. I have one of those, so I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't make too much fun. Uh, but we have to believe that everyone's bringing something to the table here. And that's when we'll see everyone bringing their highest selves to the work. Thanks for joining us. Learn more about TAG at tagtech.org. And check out the episode notes for more great reading on technology as a vehicle for positive change. Or you can meet up with the TAG community live at an October 2021 TAG Reconnect event in San Francisco or New York City. Impact Audio is edited and produced by Jordan Marvin and our crew at Submittable. Submittable is a cloud-based social impact platform designed to help your team make better decisions and have a bigger impact. We'd love to partner with you to maximize social good and create lasting change. Find out more at Submittable.com. And until next time, take good care.